Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I am Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Vera Camden, the author of Mary Franklin and Hannah Burton, She Being Dead, Yet Speak It, the Franklin Family Papers. I also have her assistant, and he will be joining us also. I wonder if we could begin the interview by having you say a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Sure. Um, so for myself, I sort of wear two hats. Um, I'm professor of English at Kent State University in Kent, Ohio, uh, where I specialized in um, teaching the early novel, the early English novel, as well as uh, currently more contemporary uh, genres, uh, comics, graphic narratives, graphic novels. Um, I also uh, am a a psychoanalyst by training and I have a private practice and I'm a training analyst at the Cleveland Psychoanalytic Center. That in itself is is a long story that I won't occupy folks with today, but Essentially, um, my training was in critical theory when I first came to Kent, and I uh, was fortunate enough to um, be trained as a psychoanalyst as part of my kind of theoretical orientation, and then it evolved into a private practice. So those are the two hats I wear, um, and I suppose I have other few hats, but the, but the current uh, project of this book was my ongoing interest in um, women's studies the experiences of early modern women, but also of, um, you know, women throughout history and indeed in contemporary women. So this has been a really long-term project, but one that I'm very, very proud of. Tell the audience the significance of the Franklin Family Papers and how this included the voices of ordinary women. Yeah, I think that's a really great way to open this discussion because you know, we are, since the 80s, we are familiar, more familiar, uh, refreshingly, with the contributions of, of early women writers. Um, and there have been many 
you know, very distinguished uh, volumes of, um, of the voices of women who have been neglected in the canon, you know, the canon of the received texts of uh, certainly Western literature and certainly English literature. Um, so the, so the, um, the, the movement towards reviving uh, and uncovering some of these voices is really important in the series that this book is published in, which is called the Other Voice series. It has many, many volumes. I mean, scores of volumes in its international series this particular volume came out from the English series uh, edited, the general series edited by Elizabeth Hagman. Um, but the significance of, of this kind of volume is, is twofold. One is the, as I say, the revival of women's voices from history, but then in particular, as you stress, Deirdre, is the interest of an ordinary woman, a, a woman who is not, say, of you know Elizabeth's court. Although, my goodness, how exciting to investigate not only Queen Elizabeth I but her court and all the many um, you know uh, writings that emerged from that wonderful decade of the English Renaissance, um, but or more than six decades really. But that that all of those works are remarkable, but. The interest of this volume is that the uh, lower classes or the middling classes also uh, had a, uh, uh, a wonderful burgeoning of literacy in the early modern period. And the Puritan women in particular uh, were, uh, you know, moved towards literacy given their investment in the Bible and in, in their own narrative of their conversion. So this is in some ways um, connected to that uh, burst of literacy and then the need for telling one's own story, not only in terms of one's salvation, which is more familiar in terms of a conversion narrative, but also one's experiences of life. And this, this particular volume is filled with stories of domestic detail and of political uh, political action and political um, persecution uh, under under the um, restored regime of Charles I. So there's a political energy, a domestic energy, a spiritual energy, and of course, a deeply familial and personal energy as well for, you know, Mary Franklin was a wife and a mother, a wife of a minister and a mother of, of um, you know, many children. Can you explain to the audience who were the dissenters? Oh, the dissenters. Um, so, so the dissenters were a group, uh, really, that have a great deal to do with American history. If you think of the, you know, sort of the the Puritans that came over, you know, uh, in the in the seventeenth uh, uh, century, especially sixteenth and seventeenth century, to the United States, these would be the the people that were fleeing the oppression of the English government um, during during the. Um, uh, dominance of the Church of England that that was restored in the 1660s. So during the English Civil War, which was the 1640s, um, there was a revolution, of course, against the monarchy uh, because of the tyranny, as it was described then, of Charles I, who was beheaded. So it's an important kind of moment of revolution. 
those those individuals did not want to be told, you know, that they had to be under the monarch. They had a kind of a early form, I would say, an early form of self-rule and democracy. And most of all, they wanted to have religious freedom and not be told that they needed to worship in certain formal ways. So there it was a kind of a radical religion, a, a religion that was very biblically based and very focused on individual salvation individual will, individual determination. And as you say, many of these folks fled and came over, you know, uh, as the pilgrims, as we call them. Um, so the dissenters who, who were in London at this time of Mary Franklin's uh, writings were um, uh, being persecuted as the monarchy was restored in 1660 under uh, Charles II. And during that period, the, there was a lot of oppression, surveillance of the state, um, persecution, uh, imprisonment. Mary Franklin herself was the wife of a minister who was imprisoned uh, over and over again for, for nearly two decades, almost her whole married life. So um, the story is, is filled with a kind of um, a story of uh, resistance, but also of prevailing because they, they were very brave and, um, and uh, took pen to paper to tell their story, lest anyone forget what they went through. Now, if you look at Mary Franklin's background and how she met her husband, Robert Franklin, can you give us a little connection there? Because how she grew up and how she was connected to an older man. Right. It, the, the, he was older than her, but I think that in that sense, um, it was probably perhaps considered a little bit more appropriate in those days than we might think of it today. But yes, yeah, she was a very virtuous young woman who's, who's she's very proud of the fact, really, when she tells her, when she writes her autobiography, she's very proud of the fact that she, uh, unlike, let's say, John Bunyan, who, who, famously converted from being a kind of man about town, a rake, you know, a, a bad boy in his village, then he converts, finds Jesus. That's a more typical story. For Mary Franklin, she starts her story by saying, you know, I did not need to convert because I was raised by holy, holy parents, you know, and she, she proudly points to a legacy that, that she had during the, the reign of Mary Tudor, the so-called Bloody Mary, that she had relatives who were martyred in that cause, the Protestant cause. Um, so uh, she, it, during the Great Fire of London, she has to move neighborhoods uh, because her family's home is burning. And she finds herself in the neighborhood of Islington, which uh, was where Robert Franklin was uh, a relatively young preacher who himself was um, preaching in, a, in a, 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 a meeting hall in Blue Anchor Alley. And she started attending his services, was impressed with his preaching and over the acquaintance of a couple of years, uh, ended up um, you know, marrying and being a, a, young, a young mother. Um, right when he was arrested uh, by the uh, by the spies and informers of Charles's um, uh, militant um, militant uh, regime, militant against the dissenters, that is. Can you briefly tell us about her first year of marriage and how she suffered? Well, it was appalling. And she and I think one of the things that's really striking about this narrative is that she's, as I say, brave enough to take pen to paper and tell this story. She's 
later in life, she tells the story of what she suffered, but she describes, um, uh, you know, the fact that he was uh, violently uh, arrested. Uh, and then she's pregnant. You know, she was was, was within her uh, second year of marriage. She becomes pregnant. And um, while she's pregnant, he is arrested violently and she has to walk. Uh, I believe, Luca, wasn't it 30 miles to mm-hmm. Aylesbury yeah. Prison to um, to visit him? And she describes suffering the effects of that arduous walk uh, as a young pregnant woman and um, suffering a miscarriage then upon her return. So her first experience is very tragic. She goes on, of course, to have other children. And there's a very moving correspondence between the two of them. I mean, one of the things that impresses me about her narrative is um, is the fondness of their relationship. There, it really comes through. Uh, very often, I think some of the more staid and formal historians of British history like to say that, oh, the early modern couples didn't have necessarily great affection or they didn't have affection for their children. I don't know where these people come up with these ideas, right? Um, Because if you actually look at the manuscript writings of women and the ordinary people, uh, you 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 feel the love, you feel the um, the the devotion, you feel the suffering. It comes through in a very common voice, and very powerfully. So that uh, I think again, one of the real reasons to retrieve these kinds of manuscripts from the archives is to hear these voices of people who, yes, they're different from us, but they're also very much the same. Yes, she always signed her her letters in a really interesting way. I thought. Now, when you look at uh, Mary and her life, I I want us to focus on a historical event, the Black Bartholomew Day. How did that make things worse for families during that time? The the uh, the Black Bartholomew's Day was a day uh, that they would say went in infamy when because of the restored government of Charles II, the restoration that is of the monarchy, there was a real fear because the English Revolution had upset the world. It was the world turned upside down. The monarchy, the the first king was beheaded. And for for 12 years, you know, Oliver Cromwell reigns in a way, reigns is probably not the right term, but he rules. And um, that whole world was for the more conventional um, monarchists, the royalists, that whole world was very disturbed. And indeed, it was in many ways um, a difficult period because the theaters were shut down and so forth. But anyway, the point is, is that when Charles II is restored to the monarchy um, and the Church of England is now, again, the dominant religion of conformity, what's called conformity to the Church of England, um, there is in the in the air, so to speak, in the mood of the country is to is to make sure that the dissenters or the Puritans who who uh, in so in so many ways fomented the revolution and and thrived in this period don't repeat this. So there was an anxiety about uh, uh, any kind of future revolution. You know, as a consequence, they identified all of the uh, nonconformist or dissenting preachers as potential threats. Uh, Maybe some of your listeners know who John Bunyan is. And John Bunyan was famously imprisoned during the same period because he didn't have a license to preach uh, under the the, uh, so-called Clarendon Code. 
you needed a license to preach. You couldn't just sort of get yourself a soapbox and stand up and hold forth on the scripture, even though Bunyan, of course, claimed when he was, you know, tried uh, in, when he was in prison and had a trial, he famously said that he knew the scriptures better than any of his of his um, uh, persecutors. But and he probably did. But uh, but Bartholomew's day was a day when all the ministers, then the, the preachers of the of the dissenting um, congregations, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Baptists, were ejected from their pulpits. That is to say, they lost their their right to preach, they lost their livings, they lost uh, everything, and they many of them were imprisoned, as was Robert Franklin. And the name of the name goes back to a uh, another day of, of infamy and persecution of the Protestants in France, and I don't recall the exact date, fifteen something or other, of um, of of, of uh, Black Bartholomew's Day or Saint Bartholomew's Day in France. So there's a there's a, an allusion to this earlier period of persecution in Europe. Mary talks a lot about how she carries the baby, loses the baby, different events happening. And I thought it was interesting that this is also an example of what we would now call postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. And she called it the melancholic humor. So can you explain to us how that uh, writing in her journal maybe is a form of therapy and what we know about that form of, of expression? Yeah, it's a good question. And um, I um, I didn't go into any great clinical detail, though I was tempted to, but I felt that perhaps others like yourself who would read this might pursue this angle. You know, it's a kind of a question for an editor, how much to, I mean, my, my, my duty, so to speak, would be to present the text and uh, perhaps as my colleague at Kent State, who's also a marvelous medieval editor, Susanna Fine says, you know, leave something for the rest, the rest of the readers. Um, but, but this would be certainly something to look at. And it raises the question of how we apply current clinical categories to uh, figures from history, early modern figures, or, you know, figures from any period of history who leave us records of their mental sufferings. Bunyan is most significant in this in terms of my work, because he, part of his genius, really, true genius was that he was able to record the extent of his mental sufferings. Mary Franklin doesn't go into anywhere near the detail that Bunyan does, but she does, as you say, mention her um, melancholia, her, I think she also refers to it as her troubles or her problems. And there's a point at which she says that, you know, had it not been for the Lord, she really might've given up. Um, I, I do think it was tied to a kind of postpartum depression, but I don't know that I would focus on that so dramatically, I I would rather, I think myself, others could differentiate this, but I would put it more in terms of the circumstances of her life. She's holding down the house with her husband in and out of prison. There's obviously a financial challenge. Her congregation comes to her assistance, but she's, she records, you know, the the, the, the interruptions of the weaning of her other children, her care for her other children while she is pregnant, while she is giving birth. Um, so I think there's 
um, I think there's a really um, important way that we need to understand the social and environmental context of her despair, um, uh, perhaps less than we would be prone today to want to think of it sort of biologically or organically. Um, I'm going to ask my assistant, who's also really interested in maternal depression, what he thinks about this. What is your opinion on this, uh, Valentino? Um, I mean, I, I, I tend to agree with you that I think that Mary sees her depression or her melancholia, um, I mean, we, or the way she presents it as a response to the, the persecutions of the government. And I think that that is the, should be the focus of, the, um, of, of her narrative. I mean, I think that that is how she wants us to understand it. And honestly, how any of us would understand that, of course, she's depressed, she's lost several she loses several children because of because of the persecution her she's under duress i don't think it's a surprise that her 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 body is affected by the the stress of of the um of the persecution it's super interesting you know in in terms of our contemporary moment to to read the detail with which she describes her breastfeeding of these children and the the uh the terror that she experiences while she's nursing while some government informer you know intrudes literally breaks open her window and how difficult it is for her to to nurse her children while this is occurring so i think that's a perfect example the other thing that valentino and i discussed as we were thinking about this is how unlike a lot of of the of the puritan women a, a lot of the puritan women will blame themselves you know if a, if a, if a child dies or if a child is sick, or if there's some other tragedy, they will ask the Lord, you know, what are you teaching me? And fascinatingly, Mary Franklin really doesn't use that kind of discourse. She recognizes when she has this miscarriage, for instance, that it was because she had to go visit her um, husband in prison that she then came home so worn out that she miscarried. She doesn't say that the Lord is punishing her for a darn thing. And I really find that very refreshing. Yeah. Um, notably, I would also just think about the fact that Mary never, as far as I remember, doesn't identify a postpartum depression after the birth of any of the living children. I think that's what true. She's, what she's that's reflecting true. On is the loss, which that's is true. different than post. Of course, it's a postpartum depression um, generally, cat, generally yeah. cat, in a categorical sense, but it's mourning. It's mourning the loss of a child that shouldn't have passed because of persecution. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Or, or because of whatever other circumstances, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. some of her children have fevers and so forth, yeah. Now, she has many significant life events. Tell us about the skillet accident. Well, let me think. <laughs> this is when, is it her daughter? It's her daughter, Mary. Mary. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the maid in the house, if I'm remembering this, tips the milk that is on the stove onto the baby. Yes. And burns the baby all the way through, you know, just a terrible burn all yeah. the way through to her windpipe. And the, well, she's how old is she? Is she three? I'm trying to remember. Is she three? So she's not, she's not an infant, but she's a, she's, very young. she's young because sorry, she's young. I'm sorry. I'm getting a bit confused with the other story, but yeah, she's, she's, she's old enough to, to cry out. She, the baby, yeah. the child is old enough to cry out to God. Yeah. And so the, the tragedy, and again, I think what's remarkable is that Mary records this. She wants us to know this, that the, that the, the daughter suffers for, I believe, three 
three days, they bring in the surgeon, which would be like the doctor who was a relative uh, who tried to help her. And then the baby or the child passes away and prays gloriously, you know, to the angels of God to take her. So she, even at that young age, is um, uh, thinking of her uh, comfort, right? And I, I think that's one of the ways that the early modern uh, families were able to understand the prevalence of death was that God was, you know, taking the the child or taking the relative, taking the loved one uh, into his bosom, you know, that this was a, I don't know, this, this was a moment of sorrow, but it's also a more moment of an embrace, you know, of the divine. But it's quite a story. I mean, it's an early example for those of your listeners that are interested in the early novel. We often talk about Bunyan again as the, one of the fathers of the early model novel because of his um, realism, because of his psychological realism and his also, you know, sort of physical realism. But I think this is, again, one of the uh, exciting things about this common woman, ordinary woman's writing is that it's filled with such graphic detail. She feels the desire and the urgency of capturing her experience in um, often quite gory detail. And you may know that, you know, from the introduction, I mentioned that, that a later 18th century, quote unquote, editor who copied this manuscript took out some of the more gory scenes, you know, which I think is funny that the a later editor, who knows who it was anonymously, took out some of the scenes that they thought perhaps were too much to bear. Now, you know, looking at the whole uh, book, you had a part about the last will and testament of Mary Franklin. What were some of the items that were of interest that told us about their life during that time period? That's a great question. That's an, I, I'm trying to think. So let's see. I have to remember she had one of the things that I found very interesting was that she she was very specific about giving uh, mourning rings, which were, you know, rings that would be uh, worn or, or commemorate her. Uh, and she, and they're quite valuable. They're golden. So that, that that's something that was, you know, she would give a mourning ring to this or that relative or to this or that friend that the, the will, as you suggest, is very detailed. Um, other items are, are linens and embroideries that were done by, you know, a grandmother that are, that are of great value. Um, what else do you recall? Other items, um, domestic items. I mean, money of money. <laughs> one, one of the things that, oh, sorry, what were you going to say? No, I was just thinking, I mean, the thing that interested me was the, um, the, the, when you said money, the money given to the, to the preacher, I think that, that yes. Grosvenor. Yeah. With Grosvenor, she, she wanted her funeral sermon to be preached by one of the most distinguished London divines of the time. And she left him some money to pay for his, uh, for his, uh, for his sermon. And he gave a brilliant sermon, I must say. And he was very much, I think a friend of hers, it's, it's speculated that he wrote perhaps the very last line, which I use as the title of the book, She Being Dead Yet Speaketh, um, that he extracts this, of course, from the passage, from the biblical passage of Hebrews, changes the gender, changes the sex, I should say, uh, to from he to she. It's not Abel that Abel is the one being spoken of in the Bible, but Grovner takes this and says, she being dead yet speaketh, she, he, he moves the sex of the speaker to she, um, in, in, a, in a way, putting her in the august company of the martyred that are mentioned in the book of Hebrews. Um, the other thing interesting about the will 
is that she very carefully, very deliberately gives certain amount of money to each daughter, each surviving daughter. Uh, and the one I like to emphasize that the one that gets the most money mm-hmm. is the one who isn't married yet, because clearly Mary Franklin understands that the one who isn't married is going to need more of the money. Uh, that would be my fantasy, at least, is that she, this is why um, uh, uh, Sarah, Sarah gets the most money. But then Sarah does go on to marry, but after, after her mother's death. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's very careful to, uh, to apportion sums to, to individuals. Now, I thought it was interesting that you brought in the granddaughter and how she became uh, a part of this whole scheme because of her writing. Tell us about that. That was a really great nugget. Oh, it's a, it's more than a nugget. I mean, it, 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 it it's the, it, it's, it's in a sense, the bulkier part of the book is that the granddaughter, and, and that is again, one of the um, fascinating things about this collection um, or this edition uh as far as I know, it may be the only example that we have from the early modern period of um, a, a, a daughter or granddaughter or perhaps even son uh, taking up the, the, the work of, uh, of one and, and of one generation and extending it into uh, not only the second, but the third generation. So set, taking it into the third generation it's a it's in this sense extremely um, rare uh, example, and it's I think a testament to this family. I mean, there's two things here to emphasize. One is that the family preserved these papers, and they make very clear, or Hannah Burton, the granddaughter, makes very clear that these documents were found among her her mother's. That would be the daughter Sarah's private papers and that they are to be preserved all the way into the um, 19th century. um, They are uh, considered uh, valuable as such for their writings. Um, Hannah Burton, the granddaughter of Mary, uh, finds this this notebook, which is is the notebook of her mother, sorry, of her grandmother, Mary Franklin. She says this, you know, I found this notebook among my my um, my mother's private papers. It's my grandmother's experience. So Hannah Burton gives her grandmother's narrative a title. She calls it the experience of my grandmother, Mrs. Mary Franklin. Mm-hmm. There's a deep reverence in this. And then she she remarks, she, Hannah, the granddaughter, remarks that because she is low in pocket and cannot afford a copy book, a notebook, she will use the empty pages of her grandmother's notebook. It's also worth remarking, of course, that the actual notebook, which is quite an elegant volume that goes back all the way to the 16th century, was actually owned by the, the, um, the grandfather. That would be Robert Franklin, the minister who was imprisoned, and it was his sermon notebook. Um, and then prior to that, it belonged to one Thomas Martin. So this is what my colleague Margaret Zell calls social authorship, where these books, notebooks, and manuscripts are passed amongst members of the family, amongst members of a coterie or a group, a community, a congregation. They have a social life as well as an individual life. You know, so whereas I was emphasizing earlier that one of the really key things about the dissenters was 
their emphasis on the individual conversion, the individual experience. I would also add, apropos um, Margaret Azell's point about social authorship, that there's also a communality, a, com a communion, a, uh, a group, uh, a group um, uh, spirit that informs the literacy of these, of these um, writers. Um, but Hannah, of course, tells her own story in her own way. And her story is a different story from her grandmother's. And she captures her story of about four months suffering the mourning of the loss of her husband and the consequent poverty that she descends into. She, Hannah, had been a very prosperous wife of a, of a London goldsmith, uh, master goldsmith, who fell on hard times financially. Her husband um, passed away who she also loved very much. And um, she's now suffering both poverty and um, a kind of economic persecution, I guess you could say, the persecution that could exist only in 18th century London of a widow with little means who's trying to make it in London, on the London streets without compromising what uh, Daniel Defoe would call her virtue or the virtue of her children. I, I just thought it was of interest how she walked to hear the sermons. Was that a social activity during this time period? Absolutely. Um, it was called sermon gadding. And um, I don't think that term, because that, that implies a kind of, of um, almost trivial socializing, the gadding, the term gadding. But I don't believe that was true of Hannah in any way. Hannah's searching from sermon to sermon was literally searching for a word of God uh, to inspire her, to console her, and, and to guide her. These, these early modern believers were devout in their conviction that providence was guiding them. And so she would head out, as she would say, uh, how did it go? I would head out on a, a fine- Frosty morning. Yeah, on a fine yeah. frosty morning. Yeah. And she would she would go attend the sermon of minister so-and-so, the minister so-and-so. And then she would record in great detail the um, the um, uh, message of the sermon. The the what we have to remember is that this is before the days of, you know, recording anything by technology, no ballpoint pens. All these are quill pens. The the, the notebooks are um, are fragile in many cases. And um so is she recording these when she gets home from memory? Is she attempting to do so within the church? Probably not, given the quill pen. So she's her memory is extraordinarily capacious. She records these sermons in fabulous detail. They were they were it was quite I mean quite moving, you know, to 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 transcribe them actually. What is the overall message you would like to leave the reader with after they finish this book? Let's see. Do you have thoughts about that? What would you say, Valentina? The overall message. Um, Maybe the Virginia Woolf quote. Do you want to give that, or the Jane Austen Virginia Woolf quote? Yeah. Can you? Do you have? You have yeah. A, yeah. I don't know. So yeah. the, I think the the thing that we would we would think uh, one of the things. I don't know if there's an overall message, but certainly it would be the the um, the uh, importance of listening to the voices of women in history and indeed of the women of our own day. Um, as uh, how does it go? We, we, we cite, uh, you know, 
my, I'm a Jane Austen scholar, among other things. And she famously in Northanger Abbey um, has her narrator say, how does it go? Um, that the, she says that the, um, you know, she would rather hear the story of a, of a woman than the, as, than the quote, 900th abridger of the history of England, as Jane Austen says, or as Wolf echoes Austen in the room of one's own, she looks behind the counter and sees a girl and she says, and there's a girl behind the counter too. I would as soon have her true history as the hundredth, 150th life of Napoleon. Right. So that, you know, I mean, I believe there was a, there was a, a great, biography of Napoleon that came out last year. I've no, I've no a gripe against the biographers of Napoleon. Maybe Virginia Woolf had more of a gripe, but I, I absolutely feel that we've not understood the uh, proliferation of manuscripts that women wrote and are continuing to write, the writings of ordinary women um, uh, and the experiences of ordinary women that really are as much of a history. You know, I say to my students, if, if, if somebody looks back on our time, uh, you know, what would be the most iconic thing, you know, that, that you would want them to know about you? And it wouldn't necessarily be something that had um, uh, uh, a resonance with, uh, with a, a, a major male political figure. Again, all of our lives are impacted and I'm certainly documenting how this family's life is impacted by the global, you know, the global event of monarchy or, or you know, the beheading of kings and so forth. But the experience of the people is also important to understand what did they go through, the, the uh, everyday person. I think that's one of the things I'd want to, to preserve in this, in this, um, in this you know, collection of writings as well, I suppose, is just a testament to human endurance and resilience and faith, um, because that's certainly what Mary Franklin would want us to take away, or Hannah Burton would be the power of their faith to sustain them through very trying times. I have taken up enough of your time. Now I want to know what's the next project you're working on? Well, now I have to switch hats. And and by the way, I appreciate your interest and and you you've um, you know interested me very much with your questions. It's been a privilege to talk to you. It's, um, but I our, our next project, and this is I um, uh, say Valentino Zulo and I both are now beginning to look again in the archive, and in this case, uh, changing hats. Um, and looking at the history of psychoanalysis and looking, you know, I suppose in the same way that Mary Franklin is um, revealing, you know, that she is a Londoner, I'm in this project looking at the role of Cleveland, Ohio, of all places, right, uh, in the history of psychoanalysis. Uh, it, Anna Freud, after uh you know, fleeing a Nazi uh, invasion of, of uh, Vienna with her father, uh, of course, lived in London and, and started her psychoanalytic practice, you know, uh, and her work on, on the, the development um, of children's psychology and psychoanalysis. Um, after the war was over, she came over to the United States, stopping very um, significantly in Cleveland over a prolonged period of time and established um, uh, uh, the Cleveland Psychoanalytic Center, which is where I 
have my uh, practice. And so we are looking at the voluminous correspondence of Anna Freud with the various um, psychoanalytic and psychiatric uh, uh, figures here in Cleveland, uh, particularly emphasizing her relationship with uh, Annie Catan, Annie and Maritz Catan, who were distinguished psychoanalysts who lived here in Cleveland. Anna Freud came back and forth and was uh, intimately acquainted with the Cleveland group, but did not live here. But we have in our archives here and in the Library of Congress, uh, many of her letters, I mean, hundreds, scores of her letters and, and hundreds of her letters that we're wanting to look at and emphasize how important her work in Cleveland was, not only to the region, but also to the nation and obviously to the international community. So that's a new project, another woman. That sounds like a great project, and we'll be waiting for that book. Thank, <laughs> Thank you, you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much, Deidre. I appreciate your time, friend.